Hi guys, welcome to Hypothesis. I'm Amandine. And I'm Killian. And this is a show where we just talk about science. Um, this week's episode, we are talking about stories in science that we like or we find interesting, and hopefully they will be interesting to you. Um, but before we start, I just want to let people know that we have an Instagram and an email. Mm. It's Living up. Yeah, <laughs> we've been up in the world. It's Hypothesis without the hyphen, so H-Y-P-E-Othesis, um, yeah, at gmail.com and Hypothesis on Instagram. So, do you want to start with Yeah, so uh, I guess the, the first story I'm going to tell is um, about a, a Nobel Prize winner called James Allison, and sticking to my own interests, it's of course immunology related, <laughs> he won the Nobel Prize in 2018. Um, for a discovery of uh, checkpoint molecules, uh, which interesting, yeah, uh, they're important. Imp- cell cycle? No, uh, not really. No, because <laughs> no, there's uh, checkpoints in the cell cycle. That's oh, what uh, no, this is more checkpoint as in like cancer therapy yeah. checkpoints. Or is that is cell that part of the cell related. cycle? Well, I don't know. Cancer I, is about cell. Yeah, but I don't think it's cell cycle. Sorry, skipping ahead. Skipping ahead. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. So one Nobel Prize in 2018 for that discovery. So. First of all, uh, I think it's important if we're going to talk about something related to cancer therapy that I briefly summarize what cancer is for people who don't know. It's essentially a mutated version of our own cells. So um, when our cells sort of have a mutation, that means they act differently to other cells and they become kind of selfish. Mm -hmm. So instead of working with the rest of our body, they sort of act independently and work against the rest of our body. So they'll do things like drag blood vessels towards themselves and... um, sort of multiply as much as they like yeah. whereas they're usually supposed to be tightly controlled so that's why cancer goes mad and then eventually yeah, you know can can cause a lot of damage yeah. so um before james allison's discoveries the main ways to treat cancer were using surgery radiation therapy and chemotherapy and those are obviously mm-hmm. still very important interventions now yeah. um like and they probably will continue to be um, but these treatments can only cure cancer about half the time. But that's still pretty amazing. Yeah. That about half the time, even before any advanced cancer immunotherapy stuff, about half the time those measures were good enough. Um, <clears throat> so what is it that prevents our immune system from killing cancer cells? So some people might not even know, but the immune system can kill cancer. It's not just for killing you know, bacteria and mm-hmm. viruses and all those sort of foreign things. They're actually quite efficient at killing cancer most of the time. In fact... Um, it's thought that you would get cancer. I, I can't remember the exact statistic. It was something like once a day or something right. like that. Or you, you, yeah, I think a cancer cell, a single cancer cell forms in your body about once a day on average. But usually it's killed by an immune cell, so it never grows and you never even yeah. need to worry about it. It's only when it's not recognized by the immune system and it continues to grow and a couple of other things happen that actually becomes a problem. Yeah. So cancer is actually quite common, but it's usually controlled enough mm. that we never have to think about it. Um, so um, the actual way that cancer avoids the immune system is because it uses the same mechanism that our normal cells use to not be killed Um, but scientists didn't know what this was so why is it that our immune cells know okay that's a pathogen or that's cancer that's something to kill Mm. whereas when it sees our normal cells it doesn't go oh I should kill that so this is and this is what James Allison helped discover what is it that makes our cells not be killed by our own immune system most of the time. Um, so the funny thing is he wasn't looking for this at all at the start of this journey. He was studying enzymes, okay. um, just very blue sky research. So for those who don't know, blue sky research is pretty much something that 
You're not looking for... Sorry, I don't know what that is. You what? No, I've never, never heard of police cones. Never heard of that before. Okay. So I'm probably exposing myself because it's something really basic. I've actually well, actually, the definition before. is basic research as well. That's what other people call it. Yeah, okay, I've um, heard of basic research yeah. guy. So police guy research, essentially it's, I'm going to look at this thing um, that I'm interested in and I have no direct application for what this could do yeah. to help the world. Yeah. That's usually what police guy means. It's like, I find this interesting, I'm going to investigate it. Sometimes it leads to something that's could turn into a treatment or could turn yeah. into a new way of understanding something. Sometimes it's just something cool to know. Yeah. And amazingly, a lot of big breakthroughs in science, even in physics and computer science, mm-hmm. all these things started off as blue sky. It's just someone yeah. being like, what if we did this weird thing? Um, and it works. Yeah. And I think we touched on it before about funding basic research. and how Yeah. So that's why it's important yeah. to fund basic research, not just things that have a clear clinical application because mm-hmm. no one sort of would have seen this coming. Yeah. Um, so essentially, yes, James Allison was studying enzymes um, and the enzymes he was looking at appear to reduce the size of tumors in mice. So that was obviously very promising stuff. Yeah. So he'd been reading a lot about the immune system recently, and he wondered if it was the immune system that was actually killing these cells or the enzyme itself. Because the immune system was still, you know, not recently discovered, but there were certain aspects of it that were only very recently discovered yeah. at the time, like T cells, which are one of the most important types of immune cell, had only been discovered a few years previous. So it was very new area that he was just quite interested in, so was reading a bit about on the side. So that also shows it's important to, you know, read beyond your field and that yeah. sort of thing, because then he had this context. Yeah, research is really... Yeah. yeah, so he would have thought of this thing of, oh, is it the immune system, whereas most people maybe working on enzymes at the time yeah. wouldn't have thought of that. So he did something very smart, and he went back to uh, the mice that had their tumors destroyed by this enzyme, and injected them with another tumor. Now, these were the mice that had their tumor completely gone. Okay. So, because he thought, if it's the immune system, that if I inject them with another tumor, I won't even need to give them more enzyme, and they'll be able to fight it. Yeah. And um, then he, and guess what happened? The tumors didn't grow. The immune system was, in fact, killing these, no these tumors. So, extremely promising results. Then he said, I want to be really sure, he injected them with 10 times as much tumor cells as he normally would. What? And they didn't get cancer. So, so he didn't do anything else to them except just inject them with... With the enzymes that, that one time. So um, then it turned out that uh, it was T-cells that were destroying these tumours, those cells that had only been yeah. recently discovered. Um, and that, So that was early 1970s that this work was uh, starting to happen. So um, yeah, he had a very collaborative environment which allowed him to sort of carry out these, yeah. these studies that I was saying. Um, so he then discovered the T-cell receptor, which is what T-cells use to recognize their targets on pathogens. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was hoping to publish this discovery of like, the T-cell receptor in one of the top journals, like Nature or Cell yeah. or one of these big journals. But they actually rejected uh, his Wait. discovery. Yeah, um, And the sort of re- thought reason as to why they might have rejected it yeah. is because he was working in quite a small research institution at the time and they sort of expected a big finding like that to come from Something a much bigger university yeah. with a better reputation and sort of dismissed it as oh no must probably didn't get it right that's probably really? not the real t-cell receptor no but he was right um so and it was difficult to re- to publicize your research back then you know there was no twitter <laughs> or anything like that because right now you know a big discovery can be shared quite quickly even yeah. from quite a small lab if you just get on twitter you know, tweet at the right people, maybe, yeah. or there's lots of open access journals. At the time, if a big journal didn't publish you, loads of people would never read your research. And that was just the reality before things went online. Yeah. Um, but it was actually picked up by some of the bigger immunology labs who were maybe on the lookout for the discovery okay. of the T cell receptor. 
So soon offered, soon, soon after, he was offered a job at UC Berkeley, you know, massive university, yeah. um, to lead his own lab and basically to study whatever he wanted because they yeah. really wanted him. Yeah. So oh. he, was, he went from just a researcher to then running his own lab because of this big discovery and they trusted him to do what he wanted with his funding. He was completely oh, right. given free reign, blue sky, which is like the, the dream for a lot <laughs> of researchers to sort of do whatever you want. Um, so he began to investigate the T-cell receptor further. Um, other labs were actually first to discover the genetic makeup of it, so he wasn't the first one there. But it was still unknown, like, why, mm. when a T-cell receptor recognized something, it didn't always kill it, because that's what they were starting to recognize. Yeah. Even if you put exactly what that T-cell is meant to recognize, like, let's say, a certain type of bacteria, if you put that right beside the, the, the T-cell receptor, yeah. it wouldn't always be enough to, to kill. Okay. So there must be something else that gets the T-cell to kill beyond just the receptor. So he found the reason for this. Um, it was something called a co-stimulator. That's what we call an immunology. So essentially a second key, he sort yeah. of likened it to. Um, so it's sort of like a safety switch because oh, you don't okay. want to yeah, yeah. Uh, just have one option. Because, for example, you could theoretically in the body make, accidentally make a T-cell that recognized a lung cell. Yeah. And then if it just recognized that, then that, that's it. You're going to kill your own lung cells. Yeah. Now, usually your body is very good at preventing those T cells from existing in the first place because mm-hmm. they sort of test them out with all different types of antigens in your bodies which is, yeah. um, and eliminate those cells. But sometimes to get through, so it's good to have this extra safety mechanism. So the one he found, this co-stimulator, was called CD28, which stood okay. for Cluster of Differentiation 28, which basically means it was in a big cluster of proteins and it looked different. To the rest. (laughs) So uh, CD28 it was. Um, So in mouse models, it was found that activating both the T-cell receptor, which he discovered, and then CD28, um, wasn't always good enough to get T-cells going. So they had to find a third signal. There must be something else. Um, So one of his students, actually in his own lab, eventually found it. And it was something called CTLA4. I'm not going to explain what that stands (laughs) for because it's much longer. I'm not going into that. Anyway. They later found a CTLA-4, this third important signal, was actually an off signal. Okay. So this was something that, if it was activated, would tell the T-cell, don't kill this. Okay. So, so you had these, the T-cell receptor and CD28, which are on switches. If you yeah. activate those, the T-cell is getting ready to kill. Uh-huh. But if CTLA-4 is activated, it's this break on the immune system that yeah. says, actually, ignore those other two signals. This is the important one. Okay. Yeah. So they sort of found through experiments that this break on the immune system was actually more important than the activatory signals. So if you okay. got all three of them activated, it wouldn't do anything. So this is, again, another safety mechanism, because what it actually turns out is that um, CTLA4, this break on the immune system, is something that recognizes something that's on all our natural cells, yeah. the way they normally are. So bacteria don't express these because they're not oh, human okay. cells. Yeah, yeah. So that's why a lot of the time it just kills foreign things. Um, what happens is sometimes cancer, in a way to sort of evade the immune system, would not express CTLA4. Oh, smart. So, so, um, or, sorry, would it upregulate CTLA4? Sorry, would have more of it so that it sort of, um, you know, puts an extra break in the immune system and say, oh, definitely don't attack me. I'm definitely not a bad thing. Oh, okay. You yeah. know? Um, so then they thought, right, so if this is a break in the immune system, then let's pull the brakes out and, and see what happens with cancer. Um, you know, if you t- pull the brakes out in a tumor, can you actually get better responses. Yeah. So they were trying to then create a antibody that binded to CTLA4, which mm-hmm. basically means like it's blocking, so it can't actually interact with its receptor. So the CT, 
whatever. Yeah, CTLA4. That's on the cancer slash not cancer cell, as opposed to being on the... Cell. Yeah, so there's, um, so there's the CTLA4, and then there's its, its ligand. I won't get too into the, the receptor it's binding of it. not on the T-cell, or it is on the T-cell. No, sorry, it is on the T-cell, and, and then it recognizes something on our normal cells, yeah. CTLA4 okay. does. Um, so essentially, they eventually made this antibody against CTLA4, um, and it blocked it so it couldn't signal. And then they found initially in their mass studies a 100% cure rate in their cancers, which was amazing. And the type of cancer they were looking at, blocking CTLA4 was enough for the immune system to be completely unleashed to actually destroy the cancer, which is okay, amazing. Because they took away all the... Stuff. They took away the breaks, yeah. So Because ah. so, a lot of cancers, um, at least the ones they were looking at in those mass models, one of their main reasons for continuing to get away from the immune system and continue to grow was because they, they had this signal, this one thing that's all they had to rely on. Yeah. I have this signal, you can't kill me. Whereas uh-huh. if you block that, then suddenly they didn't have anything else to fall back on. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the reason this hasn't completely cured cancer is yeah. because cancer evolves. It's something yeah. that has loads of mutations. Yeah. So sometimes if you're unlucky and maybe you get a, you get a cancer at a late stage or it found a different way mm-hmm. of evading the immune system, then blocking that one signal won't be enough because it has found other ways to evade yeah. the immune system. But it's enough that um, these drugs called checkpoint inhibitors that block those um, breaks on the immune system yeah. have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and they're going to continue to do so. They're saving more and more people every year, yeah. obviously, as they get approved more and more. Um, the first of these checkpoint treatments was approved in Ireland, I think, two years ago, okay. and it's already saved many, many people's lives. And uh, yeah, people who've recovered from cancer um, often thank them in public. I was reading this article really? about, yeah, how sometimes he's just on a plane or he's at a conference and people will just come up to him, go to their conference just to see him and say, you saved my oh. life. Because um, I was going to be like, how do they recognize him? So obviously, they, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's been pretty famous for this, especially after the Nobel Prize. Yeah, um, and in, a, in an interview, his wife said every time someone comes up to him and says that, he cries every time. Oh. Yeah, isn't that sweet? And that is uh, so sweet. yeah, and he seems like he was a, a, a very fun guy. He played in a sort of country western band while yeah. he was doing his research, and he just, yeah, he just seems like this kind of guy. He wasn't always just about, you know, head down, yeah. and his whole life was science. He, yeah. you know, he, he was having fun the whole time as well. It's just yeah. his, his main passion was science, and thankfully, he was in environments where he was allowed to pursue this open research. And yeah. I think that's just a cool story that he wasn't looking to find a massive cancer cure, yeah. essentially. But just by studying what he liked, he eventually pretty much found that. Um, and he shared the Nobel Prize with someone else, Tsuko Honjo, who discovered another one of these breaks in the immune system, because yeah. it turns out there's more than one. Um, I don't know enough uh, as much about his story, yeah. probably just because the Western world sort of put the emphasis on James Allison as the American. Yeah. Um, but yeah, extremely important studies. And that's another, that other break on the immune system is something that's targeted. And when you block both of them, mm. the outcomes are even better. Really? Yeah. So because cancer sometimes goes, okay, I won't have one strategy out of two. Yeah. And then if you can fight both of those, even better for fighting cancer. So yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So yeah, my story is a bit, well, as in it's got to do with disease as well. Um, Kuru, uh, K-U or Hu, also known as Laughing Death. Um, it's a, a brain disease. Well, 
yeah, they didn't really know what it was at the start, what caused it, what happened. The symptoms were people would be, you know, shrieking, stumbling, trembling, they'd be twitching, they'd be aggressive and hostile. Mm. Um, but they were also prone to laughter and amusement and eventually they wouldn't be able to talk or walk. Um, and mm. it affected um, the Foray tribe in Papua New Guinea. Um, and it was kind of interesting because it stayed in this sub-region. It didn't travel out into the other tribes nearby. So it wasn't very contagious. Um, no, but at the same time, it was within that community. Okay. So they, yeah, they didn't really know what was going on. Um, so they, they basically went to this tribe, had a look about, and they noticed that one of their, I suppose, rituals was a mortuary feast or endocannibalism. So it's when somebody mm. dies they would eat the body oh. um, and it's the you would eat the body of someone close to you you wouldn't eat someone random it's yeah like, that'd be gross <laughs> it's a close family members that yeah. eat the body um and they also noticed that it was mostly the women and children that were doing this and that men wouldn't eat the body and mm. i don't know now if it's this particular one because but i exo cannibalism is when you eat someone or yeah someone that's like outside of your own group so endo, endo is, is like within, within. Okay. whereas this is someone outside the group and they were talking about, I remember reading about, you know, exo-cannibalism is more like if you kill someone in battle or something oh, and then and you, you eat, eat them. them and usually that person that was killed is healthy because, you know, they were fighting and stuff, whereas the person, when it's oh, endo-cannibalism, they yeah. were probably sick when they died. Yeah, probably not a good idea to eat yeah. them. Yeah, so... Um, otherwise, obviously, it'd be perfectly fine. Yeah, perfectly fine. Uh, there's actually a documentary. I can't remember what it's called, oh. but um, we'll probably like put it somewhere what it's called. But the, one of the women was talking about you know her eating it. And she's like, oh, the skin. She's like, yeah, it's really sweet or something. Oh. She's like describing it. But um, <laughs> yeah, that was just actually... It was really interesting. <laughs> but um, yeah, so th they also noticed that there was a long incubation period between when someone would actually, you know, eat um, the body of a family member and onset of the disease. But once disease, once the onset did happen, it like happened really fast and there was a 100% uh, death rate. So mm -hmm. you, you died every time. Um, but it also didn't produce an immune response, which I'm assuming is rare for something that's contagious. I actually don't really know mm. because we don't really do stuff like that in genetics, but apparently we were told that that's a bit odd. That is a bit odd. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So they um, got brain tissue and they looked at it and they saw that there was gaps in the cells, which meant that like it, within the brain tissue, so there was some sort of like cell death or something happening. Mm. There shouldn't be gaps. And when they sent it off to the lab, they saw that it looked very much like another disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease which happens in humans. And there was this man, uh, William Haldo or Bill. I actually don't know if he goes by William or Bill. But <laughs> I found both. William. Um, yeah, William Haldo, or Hadlow, excuse me. He was um, a vet, but he studied, he was into the whole cross-disciplinary thing and was like, oh, maybe mm. I can learn from human medicine. And he saw this uh, Kreutzfeld Jakob and thought that it looked very much like this thing called scrapie in sheep, so where they would have the same symptoms of like... Scrapie? 
Scrapey, yeah. S-C or A-P-I-E. And he noticed that in 1959. So the same sort of disease, like onset and like long incubation Mm. period. So he thought it might have jumped from sheep to humans or something like that, maybe. Or just that, they, yeah, they were somehow related. He didn't know how. He just was like, they're related. Okay. Um, I'm sure he did look into it. Like he he looked (laughs) into it afterwards, but at the beginning when he first noticed it, he was just just like, yeah. yeah. Um, Blue sky. (laughs) And yeah, well, yeah, I suppose blue sky. (laughs) Um, But they basically, there was this man called Gajasek who he actually, he studied Kuru very much in depth and he ended up winning a Nobel Prize for it in 1976. He was also a convicted child molester. Um, there's actually a really good article written by Caroline Richmond um, for, on The Guardian, if you just look up uh, Carlton Gajasek. It like, talks all about his life. Um, it's a really good article. It talks about you know him looking into Kuru as well and other stuff, but just if people want more information, that's really good. But he arrived mm. in uh, New Guinea in... 1957 and he he made all these observations about no one recovering the long incubation time and stuff and he got samples he was able to get samples from them and send it off to the US and in the US they decided to inoculate chimps they took out the brain tissue you know picked it apart and stuff and they injected into these chimps Daisy and Georgette uh, Georgette, originally known as George, they thought it was a guy. <laughs> they thought oh. it was male, and then after good save, guys. Yeah, after a while, they realised it was actually female, so they called her Georgette. Um, <laughs> but he had tried this originally with other animals, where he um, injected them with, you know, brain tissue, and nothing happened. Like he did it in like snakes, like mice. Every like I'm not going to name animals because I'm sure I'll name something <laughs> wrong. But he did it in lots of animals. And he saw nothing. So mm. he was like, what are we going to do? Gave off the sample, went into Daisy and Georgette. There was this fella Gibbs that did that. And two years later, they developed Kuru and the symptoms of it. And they wow. later died. So this showed them that it was, it was transmissible. And yeah. that it was like a disease that could go from one um, animal to another. Um, and... This is just to say, because I know you love talking about vaccines. I sure There do. was this fella, <laughs> William Gordon. I don't... Yeah, so William Gordon, he was looking at scrapey in, in the sheep. And he was like, oh, do you know what I'll do? I'll make a vaccine. So right. he... Yeah, so he <laughs> took samples. He did his thing to inject... And he injected the sheep. But he ended up causing a scrapey epidemic. Oh, no. Because he didn't realise, I don't think, at the time that it was transmissible. And they did all these tests on, on you know, the brain tissue. And they found that whatever it was, like, it couldn't be killed by, like, or destroyed by heat or UV or radiation or mm, formaldehyde. So that was the old way of making vaccines. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when he did that, he was like, oh, here's a cure. Great. Oh, and yeah. he didn't realise that he was actually just infecting the whole population. Oh, wow. So they, yeah, they all got scrapey. But um, the, the way they think that... Because, like, I don't think that um, sheep eat each other. So the way they think that uh, it gets from one sheep to another is maybe they, like, scrape against barbed wire or uh, something. Is and that then, why it's called scrapey? Potentially. I'm assuming. <laughs> like, that kind of makes sense. That why <laughs> it, it would does. Be. But, yeah, they're, like, scraping against the barbed wire and then the other sheep oh, would scrape, scrape and it, they yeah. would, like, get it that way. Or it could be um, from feed, from downer cattle. Like, if... Because uh, if, you know, they die... If cattle die just from natural causes i'm not i'm pretty sure we're not humans are not allowed to consume that so sometimes they yeah, turn it usually, into like yeah. animal feed yes um 
and I think it could have potentially been passed on that way. Um, so yeah, so they were looking more into the brain sample because they wanted to know what it was that was causing this. There was this um, lady, uh, Patricia Mertz, and in 1981, she was looking at the Kurzfeld-Jakob disease in hamsters and humans and looking at the scrapie in sheep. And she noticed that there was these filaments or fibrils and that they were stacked proteins and they formed little aggregates like clumps and that okay. they shouldn't be there. Well, yeah. Protein they, clumps, not a good sign. Yeah, no, it's bad, bad vibes altogether. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, so basically, eventually they found out that um, the what would happen is there was a protein that would be malformed and usually there's a specific type of protein fold called a beta sheet and uh, when, yeah, it, when yes, it folds yeah. that way you can stack proteins get they kind of fit together like uh, I don't know like lego pieces yes and yeah. um basically that once one was malformed it mm. would they found that it was actually able to make normal proteins into a misfolded protein. Yes, I remember hearing um, about this. Yeah, because they they tried... If, if you take away the normal protein, the misfolded one can't do anything. It doesn't form clumps. It's only when the like the normal protein is present oh. that it can transform it to make these clumps. And so you can actually have different strains of this disease. They ended up calling it a prion protein for this. Mm. Yeah, so you can have it for a different disease, different strains, different folding shapes, and it's basically this stack. And there was this um, anthropologist, Shirley Lindenbaum, and she traced Kuru back to a single individual. So she was just interviewing all the elders in that 4A oh, wow. tribe. Yeah, and she found it in one individual. So what they think happened is... So it can actually happen spontaneously. That's yes, what the Kreutzfeldt-Jakob okay. disease is. It happens spontaneously. So spontaneously just like random in your brain. It just randomly yeah. happens. And, and then it can be passed on if you... If you in, for in the case of Far tribe, ingest it. Yes. So one person probably had it. Their close relatives ate that body. They got mm. it. They died. They pass it on. Yeah. And it's this sort of cycle of loads of people having it. Right. So if um, you think someone you know has this, don't eat them. Don't eat them. Is okay. Yes. Right. <laughs> and they noticed. I think it was after 1960 that no no one got. Um, Kuru anymore but it's because okay. they implemented new rules of like you can't see people <laughs> and they, they got the, I hate that. they got the elders of being like yeah yeah they got like people in there trying to be like it's actually bad you're not allowed to do this anymore and it yeah. stopped and that was the the stop of the disease spreading but the thing is is that sort of in western society we have this i suppose high-tech endocannibalism so like if oh. you know through tissue transplantation or yeah. hospital equipment that isn't cleaned and there was this uh, a human growth hormone used to be given to people and it basically used to be taken from cadavers and oh, given no. to people now they make um they they make recombinant protein i'm pretty sure so they make it from bacteria and that kind of thing um, genetic modification is it yeah yeah they yeah. like well i don't know if it's from bacteria but um oh, okay. or maybe it's from uh, i can't remember how they do it Oh, it's not enough. from bacteria. Just a I don't think. Yeah, no, but they. It's basically not from the individual. Yes, they make they, it they artificially. Do, they yeah. do make it artificially, um, and that way, because things are being passed on that shouldn't be passed on when yes. you just randomly take stuff from your body and chuck it into somebody else's. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was a really cool story of how they figured it out and how that happened. And mad cow disease is actually a variant of the. Yeah, it's another prion disease. Yeah, it? and how yeah. it's passed on, you know, and I don't really know to be honest how 
because we were talking about this someone brought it up it wasn't it wasn't my original idea but someone <laughs> was like how does it even get from like eating it into the brain because mm. there's like really like it's very strict about what goes from your blood into the brain yeah definitely and your and digestive so they were system like, has a lot of uh yeah like how does destroy that, things exactly yeah. so how does that happen i don't i don't know if people know that or if they're yet to find out hmm. um but yeah i just thought that was a really cool story of how you know they just saw this disease and they're like what is it and just had to find out from the start and i'm pretty sure that was i don't know if it was or not but like the first time that they found something that was like a prion disease now, right now so I'm when they discovered that whole being a sheet lego brick <laughs> yeah. thing there was the first time they'd seen that yeah yeah that's what sort of makes them very scary as well because as far as i know those things are still fairly much uncurable aren't they um prion diseases am i right in thinking that i'm actually I not sure if yeah they're not. i don't actually i'm pretty know. sure there's because thankfully they're rare because they yeah. sort of normally arise either randomly yeah rarely or from endocannibalism or yeah. something like that so yeah it's kind of strange because yeah. it can be infectious and like not infectious like the protein whether it's misfolded or not yeah can be good or bad and um, I'm pretty sure it can be inherited as well. Like if you have a mutation that predisposes makes, you to predisposes it. to like a misfolded protein, then you could it could be passed on. It's actually really interesting because it's like inherited and inherit. It can be inherited. It can be like infectious and passed on. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the really really short stories I have is actually <laughs> slightly related to that. So I think I'll just tell this one. Yeah. Now. Um, so because it's, it's also about sort of strange tribal traditions in yes. a way so um one of our lecturers actually last year um professor clean o'farley she uh, she took us to the the national gallery um in dublin and uh, said that she was going to show us something you know that was relevant yeah. to immunology so we we're all sort of wondering what this was going to be and then she showed us this portrait of lady mary montague um and then told her story mm-hmm. um and essentially M- lady mary montague in the early 1700s um, sort of noted this um, tradition that uh, ha- that was going on in these tribes in Asia, yeah. where uh, they had they they were they would take people around um, I think young teenagers that kind of age okay. or like older children, and they would do this tradition where they would essentially um, get sort of some kind of needle and sort of just scratch them. To sort of like open up a little yeah. bit of blood, like it, supposedly it wasn't too painful. It was just mm-hmm. like a scratch. Yeah. Um. But on this needle, they would put, um, kind of this, pus sort of thing from smallpox infection. Lovely. So from someone or something that had some kind of smallpox infection. So they didn't really know at the time. It's just kind of a tradition that they did. Yeah. It's not like they were trying to do a particular you know mm-hmm. thing. But it turned out that they were actually in a way vaccinating. Yeah. Um, you know, because they were giving a small amount of this disease to these kids or teenagers mm-hmm. or whatever, and so that their immune system would recognize it and be able to fight it. Now, unfortunately, unlike a vaccine, which is a sort of form of the pathogen that can't do any damage, yeah. a lot of the time it would just be accepted that, okay, we're doing this tradition, now watch them for a while because they're about to get a really bad fever what? and everything. Yeah, and they would actually watch as these children over the next days or weeks would come down with this terrible fever and be bedridden for a few days. But then um, it turned out that the tribes that had that tradition were actually living longer a lot of the time because they weren't dying of smallpox compared to the tribes around that didn't have that tradition. So in a way, Lady Mary Montague in the early 1700s had sort of noted this 
kind of vaccination concept and yeah. and suggested that something like it be brought to the to the UK back to the UK really? um I believe it was kind of dismissed as just sort of thought oh no it's yeah. just some random yeah. you know uh cult practice or something like that <laughs> but uh turned out that she was actually in a way talking about vaccines which then is much later that Edward Jenner then mm. um famously inoculated a small boy and was just like I'm going to give you cowpox um, and the boy didn't like it, uh, at least in the painting, the very yes. famous uh, portrait of him giving cowpox to a boy to protect him from smallpox, yeah, no, and I the boy is screaming. Would like, yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, quite unpleasant. Yeah, that's pretty. So grim. that's that's a that's a short excerpt of a story I remember from the National Gallery. Do you want to tell another one, or do yeah. you want me to go? <laughs> yeah, I, I I could tell another one of mine. Um, so another one of mine, bit of an Irish connection, um, Dr. Lydia Lynch. Um, so full disclosure, Dr. Lydia Lynch has kind of been a bit of a mentor to me and, uh, I would, I would know her quite well, but she has a really cool, um, scientific discovery that I'd like to talk about. I'm and not she biased actually, at all. I'm not biased, no. Um, and she talked about this actually in her Schrodinger lecture. So there's this conference two years ago, um, called the Schrodinger at 75, because it was 75 years since, uh, Schrodinger gave, uh, lectures in Trinity on, um, sort of what he what his life was the, t- the title of the lectures yeah where he sort of predicted DNA and sort of told a lot of made a lot of interesting predictions about the future of biology yeah. that actually turned out to be pretty accurate a lot of the time um, even though he's a physicist which is a bit annoying <laughs> physicists can just do biology but anyway uh, so he gave those lectures there's this conference then two years ago Schrodinger at 75 so if you google Lydia Lynch Schrodinger at 75 you'll see her talk it's all on YouTube yeah. Um, very interesting talk and I'm going to give a summary of one small part of her talk where she talked about her own work so Lydia Lynch um, and she still does a lot of this work but at the time she was studying the immune system in fat um, so this was some, you know, an area of immunology that was largely dismissed for a long time because we don't really get infections in fat tissue yeah. or we don't get cancer in fat tissue so the immune cells must not be up to much and there mustn't be much of an immune system there is sort of what was generally thought. Um, and we now know that fat is a lot more dynamic uh, than that. It turns out there's actually quite a lot going on in fat tissue. Um, so Lydia's lab actually found that there were innate immune cells called innate natural killer T cells, so INKT cells, um, that were found in much higher numbers in, fat t- in, in people who were overweight than people who were lean. Yeah. Um, so there's some sort of correlation here. There's some, yeah. something weird happening in the immune system. Um, and they found that if they removed these cells in... Uh, sorry, I, I meant to say that they were in much higher numbers uh, in lean people compared to obese people. Okay. So, yeah, so if you're obese, you have less of these cells. So um, then they went, she went to lean mice um, and, and uh, took out these cells. Yeah. And those mice actually put on weight way faster. So it looked like those cells actually have something got to do with putting on weight and something got to do with fat tissue. So it was already, you know, quite an interesting um, thing. And this is only the beginning now. (laughs) (laughs) And you're already... I know, it is cool. (laughs) Even though I'm pretty sure I've heard this before. (laughs) I've probably told you before. Yeah, no, I have. Um, But yeah, even more surprisingly, uh, Lydia's lab found that there was another type of immune cell called a gamma delta T cell. Yeah. Um, so it's a different type of T cell than the one I've talked about previously in that James Allison story. And mm-hmm. um, it's a m- more unique kind of T cell. It's not as common. Um, and they were found m- much more in fat. Um, and they were quite rare in the rest of the body. So um, th- those cells produce an immune protein called IL-17, interleukin-17. Um, and Lydia's lab 
uh, created this mouse model so they would through genetic modification which we yeah. talked about before previous episode <laughs> throw back to that um, quick plug <laughs> yeah quick plug um, so they generated this mouse model that actually couldn't produce IL-17 because they wanted to see um, what would happen to these cells or to your fat tissue if you couldn't produce IL-17 because that's what these immune cells were producing a lot of okay. so they were like it must be doing something so they got rid of the IL-17 looked at the mice okay what's going to happen to them yeah nothing so it was quite disappointing because <laughs> she said in their talk she spent a long time trying to get this mouse to not yeah. produce IL-17 and then yeah. see what happened to the fat and absolutely nothing happened but then she was determined to see no there must be some kind of function here because yeah. it's very strange it's producing this protein um so then by looking at them closer, she just started examining loads of random factors about it. Yeah. And she found that these mice were a little bit colder than other mice. Okay. Um, so that's a bit strange. Yeah. And then she found that the gamma delta T cells that were producing the IL-17, um, they, in, in normal mice that weren't genetically modified, they started producing this IL-17 immediately and in higher amounts when mice were put into cold environments. Okay. So it looks like um, it's doing something to warm up the mice. Did the modified mice produce the gamma T-cells? Well, well, they had gamma delta T-cells that weren't producing the the protein IL-17. Yeah. Yeah. So in the mice without these cells, um, she put them into what's called a cold challenge, where you put them in sort of like a colder environment to see what would happen. And they all died. All of them died, which is... Not what she was expecting, but, no. <laughs> um, because usually in an experiment like that, you expect maybe some of them to maybe come down with a certain illness or some of them to yeah. die, but they all died, which was you know, a like big finding. Approximately how cold it was. I don't know exactly how like, cold it, it was. Like, is it like five degrees, like kind of cold, or is it like 15? I'm, I'm actually not sure okay. exactly how cold. I'll have to look at the paper yeah. afterwards. It was published in Nature. It's uh, yeah, so that's how you know it's cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, the other thing as well, the innate natural killer T cell thing, um, that was also in nature. Yeah, both of those discoveries, which is cool. Um, anyway, she showed that uh, this immune cell was important in thermogenesis. So it was, you know, never thought before that there would be some sort of link between, um, you know, your nerve cells and the immune system. It was thought for a long time the brain and the nervous system and all that is completely different to the immune system. They never yeah. interact. But if your body senses temperature through nerves and your immune cells can react to that, then there's some sort of connection there. Uh-huh. And that's what a lot of uh, her research does now. It's sort okay. of looking at this um, link between, first of all, fat and the immune system, yeah. because that's a whole new area that she sort of opened up with her own research, and also the connection between the brain and yeah. immune cells, because there's obviously something here. Um, so then through looking at those innate natural killer T cells before, she also... Uh, discovered that obesity could actually impair uh, the anti-cancer activity of certain immune cells. So that is now thought to be one of the main links between obesity and cancer. Because it's it's been well known for a long time that people who are obese are much more prone to cancer. And it looks like through her work um, that it's actually the way that the immune cells um, metabolize nutrients, you know, okay. really affects their function. That's a whole new area of immunology called immunometabolism, which uh-huh. is really taking off right now. Yeah. But um, she discovered that if essentially the main thing that your immune cells are feeding on <clears throat> is lipids, which is fat, yeah. uh, they don't work very well, especially against cancer. So that that's actually another massive discovery. So yeah, just really cool things about the immune system and fat that were never known before. Yeah. I feel like That's I have lots that. of questions, but I can't think yeah, of go on. I can't think of any right now because I'm still like processing. 
That's, yeah. that's well, if you think of any, you should ask. But okay. I, I don't know if I'll be able to answer. I, I'm not the expert. I'll I'm not, I might shoot you an email. Is <laughs> what temperature the mice are at? Yeah. <laughs> that's all I want to know. I feel like I'll find that in the paper. I, I, will, yeah. I will find that. Yeah. <laughs> we need to find that out. Um, there's this experiment, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, to be honest, it sounds a bit rude now, but there's only one factor to it that I think is so cool, which is just <laughs> how long it was. So there was this uh, long-term bacterial evolutionary experiment, um, and it was just looking at, I suppose, mutation rates and like adapting, like the, the genome adapting um, in, in E. coli. But the experiment started in 1988, and it is still ongoing. Well, Like that is, cr- I think that's, that's crazy. I, I assume mean, they've got some papers published there that's oh, yeah, no, so annoying do. if not. No, no, they don't. <laughs> They're waiting for the final to come on. No, they do. They have Someone's like, doing their PhD they have on it and it's still least, going. <laughs> at least two published and then I think okay. they have one published with uh, another group who were looking at um, similar stuff of uh, bacteria okay, evolving. Yeah. I hope that's not someone's PhD project. Oh the, no, the, the, sorry. They're never going to get their PhD. You're stuck in this PhD for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, okay then. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, this... Um, so they were looking at genome evolution and adaptation, and it's called a long-term evolutionary experiment, obviously, since it takes so much time. So they were looking at E. coli and how they could adapt to um, like a glucose-limited environment. So glucose is a sugar that um, E. coli would feed on usually. Um, and in their 2009 paper, they had 40,000 generations of E. coli at that stage, which is a crazy amount, um, I think, anyways. <laughs> um so basically what they were looking at was how the E. coli evolved, how their whole genome evolved. So it's not just looking at one specific gene, it's looking at their mm. whole genome. And they found that they um, there was co- constant and rapid adaptation for like the first 20,000 generations. And then afterwards sort of decelerated. So that kind of would look like, oh, if there's not as many mutations and adaptations, then they're not getting better Right. Like they've reached their like best, way. yeah, their peak of yeah. like I can survive without this that. glucose. And <laughs> um, but when they looked at those sort of what they thought were neutral mutations, they turned out to be beneficial. Oh, in other ways. Yeah. So yeah. it actually was causing changes to protein structures and stuff to make them better at adapting to living without this glucose. So mm. even after all this time, the bacteria are still evolving, still adapting, wow. and they can save the uh, the E. coli genomes along the way by freezing them so you're able to go back and compare and see what oh, mutations see what did they improve yeah oh. and see what mutations survived and you can pick out different E. coli and be like okay let's see if this one grows and if it doesn't grow then that mutation doesn't survive and yeah so they're able hmm. to find out what adaptations work best for them and stuff like that and find out different um like features of selection and fitness and things like that. And is it in each group of bacteria, is it the same genes that are being used to, you know, increase oh, their yeah. fitness? Oh, so yeah, they can compare them like across that. groups, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and just the fact that it takes so long to look at is crazy. And the fact that they're still going at it, like, yeah. that's what I find. Like, yeah, that insane. those bacteria are still finding new ways to... Yeah, like they're nice. still... Find, like, how? I don't yeah. know. It's crazy. That is cool. Uh, yeah, so the uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is uh, this guy, uh, Dr. Leonard Hayflick. Um, oh, so, yeah, I, know, you, you, I know that word. <laughs> uh, you know the word Hayflick, yeah. All my cell culture people out there, you know the Hayflick limit. Um, so yeah, the Hayflick limit was named after this guy. Yeah. Um, so he discovered that normally a cell 
uh, can divide about 40 to 60 times Mm -hmm. before it enters a stage called cellular senescence where it doesn't really divide anymore. Yeah. And then he's, he, pre, he, after this discovery, developed this senescence theory of aging that mm. maybe the reason that we age and organisms in general age is because our cells have this sort of limit on how much they can divide. Yeah. Uh, this is something that nowadays we take for granted, but I think his story is really interesting and it's only one of many stories in this really, really good book that yeah. I'd like to recommend uh, called The Vaccine Race. Ooh. Um, by Meredith Wadman and uh, it's a really good uh, story just about the creation of the first vaccines and this guy Leonard Hayflick played a massive role in that because he was doing the cell culture procedure Mm. that was developing the cells that the the vaccines were being developed in yeah so um, he had a really crucial part in the creation of these vaccines and has a really cool story himself he did some Mm. crazy things (laughs) I definitely read the story I'm not going to talk about all that I'm just going to sort of talk about the this particular discovery but very interesting guy um, and only one of the characters in this book. Anyway, um, so he was the cell culture specialist at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia. And um, he, he sort of was uh, working in cell culture, um, basically using human cell lines, so human uh, embryo cells, essentially. Mm-hmm. Just so at the time when they were running all these new cell lines, it was pretty gruesome. They had to essentially get, um, they usually got aborted fetuses and took their cells and use that because those were the only ways that at the time that they could get embryonic stem cells which are these cells that can uh you know rapidly divide and turn into lots of different types of cells and that sort of things they were the most dynamic cell types so that's unfortunately the way they had to do it um but he found that he was you know growing them and growing them in these vast quantities because they had to be used for research for vaccines Um, and he found that after a, a certain amount of dividing because um, you'd you know they divide a certain amount, then you'd move them to the next plate, and then they'd grow there, yeah. and they'd fill that plate, then you move them to the next one. And that's still how cell culture works today, and a lot of biologists are trained in cell culture. Mm. Um, it's a big thing in biochemistry and all of that. Um, so he discovered that at a certain level, the cells would just not be dividing anymore, and yeah. he was like, "Okay, there's something wrong with my technique," because there was a Nobel Prize winner, um, Alexis Carell. He won the Nobel Prize, I think it was for a pioneering uh, surgical technique. It was some sort okay. of heart surgery or something like that. I might be wrong. Um, but he also had another experiment that was quite famous it, um, where he had this, uh, again, very long-running experiment. Yeah. Um, I, can't remember. I think it was ran for like 30 years or something before he stopped it, um, which was he had a, a chicken heart, okay. I think it was, that he um, that was growing cells from. Yeah. And the cells kept growing. Okay. And he was like, look at my perfect cell culture. I finally got it right. These cells never stop. Because loads of other people who tried cell culture, like yeah. Hayflick, they stopped eventually. But he was like, nope, just shows you if you do it right, you can get them to grow forever. No, I... And people tried to replicate his method as much as possible, and they could not get their cells to divide rapidly. Yeah. So, you know, one of the important pillars of science is reproducibility, which is if no one can repeat your experiment, you probably did it wrong (laughs) or you didn't take down the method right or something. So Hayflick began to be really frustrated because he was really, you know, at at that stage, you know, becoming a bit of an expert in cell culture. He tried it so many times and just could not get it to divide beyond 40 or 60 times. So he was starting to think there must have been a flaw in the original thing. And he put forward his idea no, cells stop dividing after this amount of time. Look at all the data I have. I've done this so many times and I couldn't get it to work. And there was a lot of uh, debate in the scientific community. They sort of thought, 
you know, who's this guy, yeah. you know, relatively unknown, who's challenging a Nobel Prize winner, <laughs> saying, no, 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 you were wrong. Um, they don't divide. Uh, and and he was right. They, cells don't divide forever. So then what was happening in Alexis Carell's experiment yeah. where they supposedly kept dividing and he just eventually shut down the experiment out of boredom. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that he was using um, this sort of serum that uh, was, was taken from... Um, I think it was called bovine... Was that, was that the one? Bovine fetal serum. Essentially, it was from... Uh, a fetus okay. where you sort of get a com- components of their blood which would contain lots of nutrients and you'd use them to grow your cells yeah but it turns out the way that he was doing it the the it wasn't a very pure sort of filtrate of just the nutrients that the cells need to grow yeah. he was actually adding in some cells so it turned oh. out there were actually some embryonic cells in the liquid he was putting into his cells so he was adding more cells and that's why the cells kept growing because no these new embryonic stem cells the ones i said could yeah. do lots of different things. He was adding small amounts of them every time he gave Did them he nutrients. Know? No. Well, actually, that's debated because I looked it up. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, we don't know for sure if he knew or not. Some yeah. people thought he eventually realized and maybe that's why he shut down the experiment. Oh. And he was afraid to admit he was wrong. Did Other people thought it was a genuine mistake. He was just so set in his way because he was like, no, I really thought I got to work. Yeah. He never admitted to it okay. that's the, before he died. But some people think that he did know and he tried to hide it. Other people think didn't. Yeah. So, yeah, bit of a and dramatic still, story. And he got to keep his Nobel Oh, he got to keep his Nobel Prize. So it wasn't for that, uh, okay. th- for that discovery oh, anyway. Yeah. right, yeah. okay. So he won a Nobel Prize in something else and then had this other big story. So oh, everyone's okay. like, oh, this guy's a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or as it turned out, this other thing maybe wasn't his forte. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, and we now know that uh, there's an enzyme called telomerase, um, which... Uh, sort of keeps cells young in a way. I think yeah. you, you probably know a bit more about this than me. Yeah. Uh, where your cells have, uh, sorry, not your cells, your DNA has... Uh, t- Do they have telomeres or yes. telomeres, however yes. you want to say it, at, at the end of them? Exactly, at the ends of your DNA strands so that eventually these telomeres get worn down like yeah. time and time again after cell divisions and eventually um, they're not really there anymore and your cells stop dividing. Yeah. Um, and cancer can some, sometimes take advantage of this they sort of produce loads of this enzyme telomerase which essentially keeps cells young so yeah. a lot of people thought originally like oh this is it we've solved aging yeah. but it turns out that just mainly leads to cancer because your cells aren't supposed to uh yeah aren't supposed, supposed to have to lots growing. of telomerase yes yeah exactly so yeah That's very crazy. interesting area yeah that fact. is really interesting especially when you know it was sort of done for the purpose of vaccine science. Again, it's not something he was set out to do. He wasn't trying to yeah. discover the mechanism for aging. Yeah. He was just trying to get cells to grow so he could put, you know, potential vaccines in them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, accidentally discovered that. aging, yeah. That's so, so cool. Yeah, so that's just one of the cool stories in that book. And uh, I think that's pretty much all the stories we're going to yeah. talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> so we might do another one of these uh, yeah. sort of episodes where we just talk about random science stories. Yeah. I know, I think it's a bit of fun. It is, yeah. But, uh, we'll probably also stick to the themes, though. We'll yeah, do, do a bit that's of also fun. Yeah, it is. So, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, and uh, see you next time. See ya. Bye.